In today's episode of the Iman Wire podcast. Everyone is a piece of your puzzle, of the puzzle in your heart that needs to be filled. Allah has chosen everyone to help you in your quest. You don't only need a teacher, you also need the, the students of the teacher and other students. We always complain as to what's wrong with my local community, what's wrong with these national leaders, why don't they get along? Because there's no suhba amongst ourselves. We don't have that. And therefore, we're never able to connect in this deep-rooted spiritual sense with each other to be able to be one and then help move the community forward as one. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Iman Wire podcast. Salim here. And joining me today is uh, our dear friend, Maltasam Atiya, who has not joined us in quite a bit. Allah. Um, but we're happy to have you again. Maltasam, assalamu alaikum. Alaikum salam, barakallah, Salim. It's good to see you and it's good to be back. You know, everybody has been talking about asking when is he going to be back on the Allah. show? You know, Allah. we miss him. So, alhamdulillah, it's a great honor to have you back on the Allah. show. And we're honored to have with us Sheikh Riyad Saluji, who is um, a, uh, a, a, a lawyer in training, uh, has worked in civil advocacy before going and training in a seminary in South Africa and is now currently living in Istanbul as a participant and administrator and teacher in uh, the Sohbah Fellowship uh, with Sheikh Mukhtar Magrawi. I want to welcome you to the show, Sheikh uh, Riyad. So for our listeners, uh, Sheikh Riyad, uh, who may not be familiar um, with, you know, your background. I, I was hoping just to start us off before we get into some topics that we want to discuss um, regarding spirituality. If you could just uh, give us a little uh, a background about, you know, the arc of your journey in terms of how you, where you are today and in, in, in immersed in the Islamic sciences, where you were before and how you got to where you are. Very good. Let me try my best. Uh, in brief, I was born in South Africa, moved to Canada when I was 14 years old. In Canada, I did my education and I applied to political science in university and after that to law school. And I chose law school because I couldn't think of anything else that I could do. I went into it by default and uh, I also went into it in a certain sense because my family was quite politically active in South Africa and I felt that law would be a vehicle for social change. So I entered law school, and the arc of my life really begins when I bumped into Sheikh Mukhtar Maghrawi. And I remember the split second that I saw his face, the split second that I met him. I was at a one-month retreat in the city of Winnipeg, and it was one of those first alim retreats where students would come and they would study for a month intensively. And in this retreat, they would also uh, have the benefit of, of staying with a scholar for one week. So scholar after scholar would come in, would stay with you for a week. You would study with them, but you would also live with them. Now, very interestingly, to square the circle, that's kind of like a sahba program, actually. <laughs> so that was actually the beginning, maybe the, maybe the, maybe the kernel of the sahba program. And it was actually in this program that we got a chance to study with many ulama and among them, Sheikh Mukhtar. And uh, when we studied with Sheikh Mukhtar, all of us said, who is he? 
because all of the other scholars were well-known, had been and were on the circuit, the scholarly circuit, except Sheikh Mukhtar, and no one knew who he was. So we studied Sirah with him, I remember, and Hadith studies, and we got a chance to live with him for about uh, one week. And in that week, um, all of us, I think without exception, I remember now, were affected by his spirituality. More so, I think, than any of the other lessons that we had been studying. Everyone was in, in some way profoundly affected by that. So much so that I remember we made additional requests to him. Can you please sit with us on a session of spirituality? Which at that time wasn't part of the program. Could you please explain to us what happens to the ruh after death? And I remember recording that session and then posting it to my wife mm -hmm. uh, to say this is something very different and something very unique and something very touching. Uh, anyway, so that's the first time I met Sheikh Mukhtar. And then I was at that point in law school. I, I was also doing a master's program in international affairs. After I finished that, there was the choice of what to do. And I was offered the chance to work with a friend of mine in a law firm. And he said, choose any area of law and you can specialize in it. Just choose the area you want, the area that interests you, and you can go with it. And at the same time, I had an offer uh, from one of our sisters to begin uh, a Canadian office of care. And it was something of a crossroads because I felt at that time, if I chose the care option, I would foreclose the door to law because doing it for a year or two years, it's very difficult to get back into law. Um, and it takes at least five years to make a name for yourself in law and to achieve a certain level of competency in law. So it felt like a crossroads. And uh, so I remember calling up Sheikh Mukhtar and saying, you know, this is the dilemma, this way or that way. And I remember him telling me, join care. And so I actually entered into media relations and politics and advocacy and civil liberties because of his advice. <laughs> and uh, he was someone I would go to in those uh, five, six years that I worked with CARE often to ask him about um, uh, how to deal with issues, how to approach them, how to th think through them. And uh, then after six years, uh, I, I'd always nursed this uh, idea of, of studying Arabic and studying the Islamic sciences. And um, so I raised that with him, I remember once. I remember we were in Hajj together and I said, you know, I'm really serious about doing that. And he told me, mm-hmm. And that's all he said. <laughs> and he didn't give me yes, he didn't give me a no. There was no indication. Sounds, except, sounds like a true sage. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a very ambivalent, yeah. mm-hmm. So I, I guess the lesson for that was to let it stew. And he wanted to see, well, how serious was I? So I came back to him a while later and I said, you know, I really want to go. And then, he's, and, and then he advised, fine, that's a good idea. Uh, first, uh, find a replacement. 
and that process of actually uh, leaving care uh, and uh, just ensuring that it was well staffed. That took, I think, at least two years because we weren't able to find someone. We had a number of candidates and they fell through at the last moment. And so that was a long outstretched period of of wanting to go and study, but just simply not being able to. And then finally, when I was visiting South Africa, I I, um, ended up meeting Sheikh Taha Karan, who is the principal of a well-known seminary there. And he's considered to be, uh, mashallah, one of the foremost, one of the premier scholars uh, in South Africa and in the continent. And in Shafi'i fiqh, he's considered to be one of the great Shafi'i scholars of modern times as well as great ability in hadith and in other sciences. So he gave me the curriculum and he said, this is what you would be studying if you came to the seminary. I showed the curriculum to Sheikh Mukhtar and he was very delighted. And he said that many of the books studied in the seminary were books that he would have liked me to study later. So with that uh, and uh, with uh, everything that fell into place at work, I left to study in South Africa, and I spent uh, um, I spent some time in Cape Town. I went through the program, and then I was given an opportunity to teach after that, alhamdulillah, and was able to teach at the seminary. And uh, in that period of time, I, I rarely saw Sheikh Mukhtar. I would see him perhaps once a year for at best two weeks. And so it was, as I mentioned earlier, something of a famine a suhba famine, and then when the opportunity arose to spend time with him uh, in a more serious way in Istanbul in the suhba program, I jumped at it. So this is really interesting, Sheikh Riyadh. I mean, as I'm listening to this very beautiful story, it's as if the, the real turning point in your life was when you found this mentor, this mentor in Sheikh Mukhtar, and uh, it completely shaped uh, the way that uh, you moved forward and. It's something I think, you know, many of us want to go and study knowledge, ilm, but, uh, you know, ilm doesn't just come from books, it comes from individuals living those books, and they become the ones who start to impact the way that our hearts see reality. So this relationship for you has continued on now for how many years? Well, since 1996 is when I first saw him, when he was rushing to perform Asr Salah. That's when I first saw him in the Winnipeg retreat. And uh, that uh, that image, in some way, was burned into my memory, etched into my heart. And then from that point onward, brief moments of suhbah, uh, attending the retreats in the Adirondack Mountains, seeing him at various conferences, uh, bits and pieces, puzzle pieces of suhbah. And then I think also because of my uh, of my studies in South Africa and the very academic thrust of those studies. And they were wonderful studies, alhamdulillah, and I'm very thankful for that. Uh, but also the pedagogy was a very academic one, one that emphasized uh, books and classroom learning, theoretical knowledge, and the application of that to a certain extent. But the more that I studied, the more I felt a thirst and a hunger for suhbah, and that that was the missing link in my education and perhaps even education in general, City. Of the most profound thing that I thought uh, when describing um, your journey was the point where you were wanted to leave 
uh, care and go to you know study uh, study in the seminary. And the Sheikh Muhtar said, you have to find a replacement. Right. And I think like our typical reaction would be like, oh, this person wants to study the dean and like you just drop everything and like leave immediately. And like you would not even think of, you know, plenty of plenty of us would just leave. You know, we wouldn't give any consideration to the the ramifications of what's what we're leaving behind, you know. Um, and that to me is, 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 a, is a great example of this level of spirituality that uh, Sheikh Mukhtar has been presenting for, for, for many, many years. And it's something that I, I want us to explore because uh, I think all of us have been very affected by this, 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 this methodology of teaching spirituality. So I wanted to, to sort of open the discussion because Sheikh Riyadh, you've been uh, also teaching uh, spirituality, you've been teaching uh, uh, certain topics in spirituality. You've also written, uh, you've written some pieces of also for Iman War. And one of the pieces that you wrote um, was about um, uh, about mindfulness and meditation, and there's a lot of um, new age spirituality that we're seeing that you know in popular media and popular culture that is taking a lot of elements of spiritual practices from different faith traditions, or just describing a very generic spirituality, uh, you know, this or, or even like the spiritual, not religious type movement that's been going on. Talk about what are the negatives. That that we're seeing in the popular culture today, and how we how we see spirituality, and how does that contrast with the the Islamic spirituality as um, as as we as we have been taught? I see. Well, just to backtrack slightly, you know, one of the things when we were in Winnipeg, and thinking about it now as that kernel of suhba, one of the things that was really interesting was how when spirituality was presented to everyone there. And we were all studying uh, aspects of the Islamic sciences, again, very academically. It was a classroom setting. But when spirituality was presented, when the seerah was taught to us, not as a chronology, because that's how he presented it even back then, it was actually taught within the uh, scope and field of akhlaq. That's how Sheikh Mukhtar approached the you know, seerah studies, it was about the akhlaq of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And I remember that that one class had an incredibly powerful effect on everyone who was there. And one of the things that struck me and struck all of us, despite, our, despite ourselves, was how that discussion of Islamic spirituality ignited this, this thirst and desire to know Allah and know who we were and our relationship to Him. And it was the first time actually in my, you know, in my life as a student that I ever felt something like that. And I think, fair to say, and I can speak for some of the brothers there and some of the sisters, it was the first time in their lives that they felt this, this, uh, this ignition or this kindling in themselves. And then as we continued on, we also found that Sheikh Mutar wasn't presenting, if you like, a very, how shall we say, loose or fuzzy spirituality. Because when you asked him about fiqhi questions, he had a deep and profound knowledge of fiqh. Right, actually, in, and Mutas and I were just talking offline before about that was the thing that I always remembered. Sheikh Mutar presents spirituality very um 
very eloquently and beautifully and, and comprehensively. And this typical what people know of him. But uh, if you're with him, like as you are in the in the or you're with him in his classes, the same level of of effort and attention is being given to the external dimensions of the religion of fiqh. Uh, yes. And and that is something that is something you may not see on the outside necessarily unless you're with him. But it's it's and that I think is what is very unique because he's very 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 um pays a lot of attention to that external framework as 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 much as the internal framework. Yes, absolutely, Sidi. I mean that 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 day when we saw Sheikh Mukhtar, I remember asking him a question when we were sitting in the cafeteria, and it's the perpetual, perennial question that every scholar gets asked umpteen amount of times. Can you wipe over the socks? So that was the question. Can you wipe over the socks? And I remember him speaking about the crown jewel of the Islamic sciences, usul al-fiqh, and how to approach the question from that uh, perspective of Islamic usul sort of the legal theory and what it teaches us about how to look at the texts. So one of the first things that I realized is we have someone who is very spiritual, profoundly spiritual, who resonates that, who lives that. And when you're in their company and when you're in their orbit, your heart resonates in that. At the same time, you had someone who was profoundly rational, who had a very profound grasp, at least that's what I felt at that time. And again, I, I was I was simply learning at that time some of the sciences, but the feeling that I got was someone who is profoundly grounded in the rational sciences as well. And for the first time, you realize there is no dichotomy. Number one, that long-lost spirituality, you know, is now presented as a part of your legacy and heritage. So it, 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 it was always a part of what Islam was, and it is a part of what Islam is now. At the same time, that is connected integrally with the rational sciences, with the external sciences. And you don't have to have one or the other. It's not an either-or proposition. So in my experience in those early days, it was the first time, and I was in law, so I was, I was interested in things legal, you know, legal studies and uh, legal philosophy. And so for the first time, I bumped into someone, alhamdulillah, who spoke, you know, who, you know, who had a, a grounding in, in the external legal theoretical sciences without having that compromised spirituality. And in addition to that, not only was there no dichotomy, but one seemingly enhanced the other. So for the first time, I was presented with the idea, the concept, and it was very novel. I think not only for me, but for many of us in those days, and I think it's it's equally novel now, that not only is there no disjuncture between spirituality and between rationality, but one complements the other, that there's a synergy between the two that's possible. And that presents a very different view of deen, a very different view of Islam. It means you don't have to settle for second second best. And, and this is where I think, Salim, there wouldn't be that disconnect between religiosity and spirituality. And it seems like this has been an age-old problem. And this is one that Imam al-Ghazali, rahimahullah, even had to address in his ihya. You had people who were, 
you know, religious in the sense, in the outer sense, the fuqaha and the people of Qadam in the outer sense. But in reality, Imam Ghazali would 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 uh, very harshly criticize them of being empty inside. And then you'd have those the who were considered to be very spiritual, but had no external realities with Allah. So Imam al-Ghazali, rahimahullah, comes as a man himself who combined the two into one persona, and then he authors a book about how to do so. So this issue that we're finding in our day and age, it's been there for a very long time. And alhamdulillah, Sheikh Riyadh was able to find an individual, a mentor, who combined those two sciences and then bridged that gap. Which brings me to what I think is a lot of the issues, and Sheikh Riyadh didn't comment on this, it's like, the issues we don't have enough mentors who are actually practicing that which they spiritually preach. And therefore, it's causing this immense confusion amongst individuals that are very well-intentioned, uh, looking to learn, seeking a place where they can bridge the external and the internal. And that place only happens by learning or seeing a man or a woman do that in front of you. And when we lose that mentorship, then we've lost an anchor in our lives and we've become confused and we start to lean one way or the other. Sheikh Riyadh found that anchor found that anchor very early on. And so that anchor, as we saw in his life, as he described it to us, became a guide for him moving forward. Now, if I don't have that in my life, if those individuals are not there, then I'm going to be swayed by the winds of change that come every five and 10 minutes and tell me I should be a little bit liberal, I should be a little bit conservative today, I should be this tomorrow, I should be that the next day. And I find myself at the end standing in a home that has no foundation anymore. And then I become confused and religion itself becomes something that is confusing to me and something that possibly I may even exit out of. Which, which is, see. you know, which is exactly what I think the, 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 the general idea is that when someone says they're spiritual and not religious, right? You're basically the spirituality is considered positive and religion is considered automatically negative because religion, organized religion, structural religion, rules, regulations, they're typically associated with negativity in our current popular culture. And, you know, so this and that and that a lot of that has come from people's, you know, negative experiences. There's a lot of reasons why people characterize them as, as spiritual, not religious. So sometimes it's people who have had negative experiences in organized religion or negative experiences in their families or communities. Other people are just were never presented or never, uh, as you said, never had that mentor who really uh, articulated and practiced this this holistic tradition of both the internal and external dimensions of religion, and hence they've become confused. And that's what nowadays with this new age spirituality, we're seeing that you know people have leaving are leaving off those external dimensions completely and and just completely retreating uh, inwardly. What is what is obviously this is un, this is an unbalanced approach. But what are the what are the real dangers for for someone who does that? Because in our community as Muslims, uh, there are people who are really almost saying no to fiqh. You know, saying no to a lot of you know established norms in our tradition for fourteen hundred years, and they're just focusing on the internal element of just okay. I'm going to focus on purifying the heart. I'm going to focus on these these concepts and you know I won't go to I won't be uh, in, in line with the Muslim, the Muslim community I won't be going to the mosque things like that what are the what are the dangers that that can can, can occur from that I mean are, are you talking about someone who's saying I'm not going to even pray five times a day or, or, or? there's some people there's some there's some some 
some may say they're not going to pray five times a day. Maybe they'll pray once a day or something like that. I mean, we're going to in that direction, right? I mean, there's a whole gamut, there's a whole range of people. But, you know, uh, I, I guess what, what, uh, what I'm, I'm, I'm coming at is that there is a level of, there's a danger in retreating too inwardly where it's almost like um, what I call like a naked spirituality. It's like just spirituality, but there's nothing, there's nothing holding it and protecting it and, and um, giving it the support it needs that where it can flourish. And so as a result, you have a lot of confusion, spiritual confusion, because you start dabbling into all these different practices, the spiritual practices. And then as a result, you become even more confused and you're just sort of lost. Yeah, I mean, lost. I would start, Sheikh Riyadh, you know, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes things very clear for us in the Quran. And the Prophet sallallahu ta'ala alayhi wa ala makes things very clear for us. And those realities that Allah azza wa jal describes are the haqqaiq, the realities of things, whether we see them happening before us at this moment or whether they take a long period of time for that to become apparent to us. But when Allah describes a reality of an individual or a group of individuals, that is the status of those people. And he describes a group of people who he says, وَمَنْ أَعْرَضَ عَنْ ذِكْرِ فَإِنَّ لَهُ مَعِيشَةً ضَنْكَ That whomever... Uh, whoever um, turns away turns away from my dhikr, I'm going to leave that just untranslated for a moment, they will live a constricted life. Now, the reality here of dhikr for us is not just I'm sitting down in the dhikr of Allah, remembering Allah, it's that I'm practicing all the spiritual elements that the Prophet ﷺ told me I have to practice the fara'id, that which is incumbent upon me, to have a connection with Allah. And as soon as I move away from that, Allah tells us there's going to be a depressive state that is going to enter and turn into this human spiritual psyche. And it's going to happen. And I will tell you from my personal experience of dealing with so many people who have taken their their spiritual um, ingestion food diet to be philosophy or to be thing matters that are not connected to that which Allah and the Prophet taught us, I promise you that has been the consistent pattern I've seen in almost all of them, confusion and depression. And so if we move away from those realities, if we try to invent our own religion, outside of what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his Prophet told us is good for us, it's only going to lead to more ailments within us that will in no way help us achieve that spirituality that we think we're trying to get. Uh, see, Salim, really the only way that I can answer this uh, is actually with something of a technical explanation. But hopefully it won't be too technical. And hopefully it will give us maybe a first principles to understand the phenomena of New Age spirituality. So the first issue is that, you know, I guess what our ulama speak about, the psychology of the human self. And that has to do with a knowledge about who we are. You know, who, who am I? Uh, am I a body? Am I something more than a body? Am I an intellect? Am I a soul? Am I a spirit? What am I? So the first point of departure is that if we don't know who we are, 
if we don't know the components of our identity, we will never be able to walk the path of true spirituality. So within the Islamic paradigm, to simplify things to their core, we have, you know, we have a spiritual heart. That heart was created to know the divine. So that is the spiritual locus in us. That spiritual locus is going to be present in Muslim, in a non-Muslim. The thirst to connect to a higher being, an infinite power, will always remain. It has remained historically. It will remain now. No matter what the neo-Darwinists tell us, the reality is that seeking spirituality is on the rise. And, and that's, you know, that's natural because in our Islamic understanding, we have that inherent spiritual craving by virtue of us having a spiritual heart. Now, on the other hand, we have something else as part of our human identity. We have a lower self or a nafs. We have a lower self and a nafs. That nafs is the impediment to me realizing my full spirituality through my heart. The functions of the heart are essentially three. To know the divine, to experience the divine, and to seek the divine. And the lower self, with its attachments, indulgences, desires, base desires, uh, caprice, those attachments are precisely what murkies the heart and veils the heart from achieving its spirituality. So that's actually the only technical foundation we need to understand, I think, you know, in a first principle sense, New Age spirituality. Because how does Islam deal with it? Well, Islam says we have a spiritual heart, we have a lower self. Everything in Islam, uh, from the level of law at every level, from every external dimension of, of, of Islam, is meant to help me realize spirituality by purifying my lower self. So any law, and you can choose any law in our deen, any law has its ultimate core intent to restrict the caprice and desire of my lower self. And the moment it does that and purifies my lower self, it frees my heart to know, to experience, and to seek the divine. Now here is actually, really, I would say the genius, but it's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's system, and it's what our Islamic heritage has always been. It's always been a holistic unity between the external and the internal. And even more than that, everything external is seen in light of that internal spirituality and that, that spiritual quest. So all of law, whatever it is, is meant to help my lower self become purified to free my heart. And you can take, you know, and I've tried to do this, and, you know, when we were discussing as students, we would try that, take any law, any law whatsoever. And if you ponder long enough, you can see, or you can see some of the wisdoms of how that law allows me to be spiritual by freeing my heart. Um, one of the ones that came to mind was, well, you know, the law of gender interaction. You know, well, why do I have to lower my gaze? 
why do I have to not be in seclusion, you know, with someone I can potentially marry? Well, you know, those are laws. And if we see them only as law and lose sight of their broader purpose, uh, we lose the essence of spirituality in our deen. Those laws are meant to curb, restrain, bring balance to my lower self in its attachments and desires in order that my heart is not clouded in intimacy with the divine. So I have intimacy with the human being in an illegitimate way and that precludes me from intimacy with the divine. So like that in every sense, like that with every law. Every law is spiritual in our deen. Every rule, every regulation, every edict, every precept, everything has everything to do with spirituality. Now take that, you know, first, first principled understanding and apply it to New Age spirituality. In New Age spirituality, you have a lower self wanting to free itself. You have a lower self wanting to create and concoct its own spirituality. Now, it simply can't do that because someone who is not a doctor can't diagnose themselves and can't medicate themselves. Someone who doesn't have the knowledge or the ability uh, to do something can't generate a spirituality. So any spirituality that is disconnected from the law and purpose and objectives of the divine in this divine system of Islam, any attempt at that spirituality, and although that impetus for spirituality is natural, ingrained, inherent, because we all have a heart, we have a spiritual heart, but any attempt to do that is only going to be the concoction, the, the uh, concoction, the wishful thinking of the lower self who who uh, you know who is only ultimately that lower self is only ultimately going to be creating a spirituality that is self-indulgent, that is narcissistic, that is misguided, that loses the mark. It's only when we obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and what He wants that the heart becomes freed from the lower self because laws are meant to do exactly that, purify the lower self. So that in a nutshell. You can now apply all of the elements of, of, of New Age spirituality to that. You know, New Age spirituality, in terms of some of its broader themes, you know, New Age spirituality is very much about you're okay. You know, you're okay. Uh, you want to have wealth, just enjoy it. You know, so it's basically enough talking. And that's exactly what it is. You want to do something, don't feel guilty. You want to be happy, don't be judgmental. I remember reading something a few days ago about the secrets of love or secrets of happiness. And one of the laws was, you know, all suffering is because of judgmentalism. Don't be judgmental, you will stop suffering. So that's the, you know, that's one of the essential philosophical, you know, uh, foundations of New Age spirituality. Just rel- rel- relativize everything. Don't judge consume, don't go against yourself, don't make yourself uncomfortable. So ultimately, it's the nafs creating its own spirituality 
And because of the inclinations of the nafs, it can't accept be a misguided enterprise. It will always be a misguided and misguiding enterprise. And the only way to remedy that is for the divine who created the human being in its different, you know, in our different components, for the divine to say, here's a body of law that you should follow, the intent of which is to purify your heart, and therefore you have to, you have to obey, you have to submit to the divine law, the divine code, no matter how much you dislike it, and no matter how much you um, are uncomfortable with it, because in reality all of that discomfort and all of that rejection and difficulty is because of the, uh, of the, of the lack of quiescence of the nafs. Uh, it simply doesn't want to uh, do something. Uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't want to surrender to a higher calling in order to be purified. It would prefer to construct its own artificial or misguided uh, spirituality or spiritualism. All of us have that spiritual inclination to to know the divine, but from that inclination is basically, been, from that point, the nafs basically takes that and directs it in a different way and just, it's an enterprise driven by the nafs. A lot of the criticism of this new age spirituality is the the um, the external ramifications of people going into this type of state because one thing that, um, that, that for example, charitable donations, most a lot of organized religions have, you know, you have to pay charity. You have to pay a certain amount of charity. Obviously Islam does. Uh, but you know other traditions do as well. There's not that impulse for people in the spiritual, not religious crowd to do that because it's all being driven inward. Try to feed, and, and as we know now, as what you're explaining, all to feed your own self-centeredness, feeding feeding the whole nafs. That the uh, doing things for others only you would only do that when, when it makes you feel good. You wouldn't be doing it when sometimes you just don't want to do it, right? Because it's not serving your nafs. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, that's, that, that's, I, I, when you look at New Age spirituality, it seems to me that much of the criticism is really because it's ultimately I take myself, although I don't think anyone says this, no one would dare to say this, but I take myself as God. Mm. I am my own God. I will chart my own spiritual destiny. And that's very dangerous because we have a nafs. We have a nafs. And it's the nafs that is the impediment to my true spirituality. You know, actually, some people even do say that, Sheikh Some people will say that by knowledge of self, I know what God is. And, and you know, part of the New Age spirituality and, and that pantheistic idea, or, you know, the idea of, of, of God being imminent in the world, that everything is God. You know, nature is God. We are one with, you know, and, and that, it, it tends to be a feature of New Age spirituality, the idea that, you know, you are part of a divine consciousness and everything is connected. Uh, you know, we're all part of one, you know, one being, the being of God. Doing that, you know, uh, of course, apart from it being fundamentally flawed, certainly from an Islamic aqidah point of view, but doing that really, it edges out God from the equation because you don't have now a higher power to submit and surrender to. You know, making God imminent in the world and making me part of God's, you know, of Godhead and I have a share of that. Again, it, it there are ways, I think, I think there are in some ways subtle intellectual ways 
but maybe in a deeper level, nafsi ways, to escape accountability and to escape the difficulty of struggle against the lower self and to give one a carte blanche to indulge the self in ways that one wants, uh, you know, with the intent that, well, this is my spirituality and I don't judge you, you don't judge me. I think all of those are, are, are very dangerous. Uh, and to the extent that that is, is prevalent in the Muslim community, yeah, I think speaks to the fact of how far we have diverted away, uh, how much we have strayed uh, away from our true Islamic heritage, which is that all of deen, this you know holistic understanding of deen, where one aspect of deen serves the other. Everything serves the spiritual quest of nearness to the divine. And to the extent that we become disconnected from that tradition, at first maybe intellectually, because that may not be presented to many Muslims. You know, um, oftentimes when you, you know, if this understanding of Islam is presented to a Muslim, uh, oftentimes you will find almost like a light bulb goes off. Uh, so that's the way I should understand law or fiqh or the sharia. And it's happened enough times that, you know, I started to think or feel that I think many of us probably don't don't have that understanding. It was never taught to us. It was never presented to us that this is what Islam is. Islam is not, you know, by in itself about rules. It's not about a civil or penal code. Islam is very much about the spiritual quest of your heart to the divine. And all of, you know, all of the other aspects of deen facilitate that, are avenues towards that. So even that very basic understanding of trying to connect the dots between the external and the internal does provide a measure of solace for Muslims, uh, you know, who might see uh, Islam simply as legal or legalistic or only as external. And of course, there are other challenges as well, because, you know, even after you know that wholeness and unity, you know, that tawheed of Islam between its various elements, even though you know that, it takes difficulty and struggle you know, to follow the law, to submit and surrender to the law, knowing that the law helps me purify my lower self, that, that takes work, it takes struggle, it's not easy. But I think at the first level, it, it, you know, it definitely begins with that religious ilm, you know, that knowledge of, of, of what our deen is meant to be uh, and how uh, there is this, you know, this bifurcation between spirituality and law, you know, is something which is not really the essence of what our tradition is Allah knows best what what is what is the key to that synergy uh, what what is the key to that connection what is that you know that 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 key element in your mind or from what you've learned that is, is in developing that connection between that synergy as you said between the external and internal well and I you know I'm, I'm actually I think I'm feeling C.D. Martasam's vibes so I'm, I'm gonna pretend to speak on his behalf because I can hear him whispering to my heart now, Suhba, <laughs> and having a model that fully embodies this reality. You know, when Rasulullah sallallahu taught the Sahaba, it was within the pedagogy of Suhba. See, one of the things that I, I, I started to realize and feel 
after having done academic classroom study is that um, I think the ideal pedagogy of our deen is not ilm knowledge with a sprinkling of suhba, but is actually suhba with knowledge folded within it. That is, the pedagogy is companionship and mentorship. And through that, one learns. And not the other way around, that one learns academically or textually, and then has some scatterings of mentorship here and there. Because the way in which the Sahaba, you know, the methodology of the Sahaba, who became the Sahaba, radiallahu ta'ala anhum, well, it's right in their name. Sahaba is from Suhba. They were Sahaba because they had Suhba. And they became the Sahaba because of that Suhba. Now, of course, they became the greatest of the saintly giants uh, of, our, you know, of our Islamic history because they had Suhba of the beloved Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. But like that, the heirs of the beloved, you know, and the scholars that can truly be said to be part of the prophetic legacy are heirs that embody his knowledge and his akhlaq, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, in which, you know, they embody, they are beneficiaries of that knowledge in its most holistic sense, in the sense that we've been discussing. And when someone is that, then spending time with that person is a lesson in and of itself, is knowledge in and of itself, is knowledge when that person does secular work, like when, when he or she buys vegetables, right? There is so much that can be learned about deen through a secular act, when they do business, this sort of person. And when, of course, they conduct Islamic activities and ibadat, so whether little things or small things, secular, mundane, religious, uh, no matter what they do, they are teaching you. They are embodying the beauty of that tawhidic harmony between the external and the internal. And that's the way the Sahaba learned, and that is the way I think, now when I look back at, at, at my studies, that was the way I think all of the students of ilm who became true students of ilm, that's how they learned. They had an alim, a scholar, who was a Rabbani scholar, who was a saintly scholar. And he was saintly, or she was saintly, precisely because they embodied this tawhidic unity between the internal and external. And the pedagogy of suhba is a lost pedagogy. And that would be an interesting discussion. You know, why have we lost it? You know, why have we become so seduced by, maybe they are, post-colonial uh, pedagogical methods? You know, the classroom, the, uh, the sterile academic classroom text-based method. When that, there is, there is space for that, definitely. There's space for textual study. There's space for you know, academic study. But it's within the envelope of that living, breathing, suhba, mentorship, relationship, uh, and not outside it. Yes, that loss of that, that community. Very interesting, you know, when you're describing uh, the, the suhba, it's, you know, 
you have the internal balance, you know, this connection between the internal and external. We also have this connection also between the individual and the community because we think of spirituality as something that is just within ourselves. But the key, from what I can gather what you're saying, the key to unlocking the spirituality within yourself is to reach out and find a mentor and to be with those people of Elm, those people of that level to, un to unlock that within yourself. So it's, it's, it's uh, connecting the individual with the community, which has been one of the, the criticisms of this new age spirituality is that it's the communities are being lost because everybody's retreating inward and just feeding their own selves. And you learn so much from being in that community, just from watching each other, because you don't go in there with all the answers yourself. Yes. You know, from the sahaba yeah. that we had in Turkey, as one brother said, he said, I, I learned how to walk upstairs with haya, with bashfulness by watching another brother. You know, you, you see so many beautiful nuances that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gifted to one individual that he didn't gift to you, and then you can learn from that person. But it requires learning how to be a community again, yes. which most right. of us don't know because we're only on Facebook and Twitter. <laughs> right. And when we get together, we have to adjust and learn how yeah, to Yeah, I mean, we talk about a lot of issues like, you know, you know, of uh, divisions of the community, of racism and things like that. But if, if when you try to devise, you know, ways to to um, to correct these maladies in the community, uh, it really is a It requires that you have to you be You have together. to be engaged with. And you have to make mistakes. And mm -hmm. you have to be forgiving. And you have to be willing to help each other learn and teach and get over those mistakes as opposed to the societies that we've built now, as soon as someone makes any single mistake, we lambast them on Facebook and just tear them down. And then we continue to perpetuate these divisions within the community. And we just continually become a fragmented community because there is no suhba amongst each other or with a male or female who is attempting on a daily basis to have a spiritual trajectory to reach Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yes. We're caught in the cycle. Uh, what Sidi Mu'tasim said actually uh, brought, you know, brought an idea that I think was, was germinating in, in my heart. And, and it's so true, is that when you have suhbah with a mentor, that suhbah extends itself in your relations with other brothers and sisters as well. So one of the things about Turkey and about the suhbah program is because of the mentorship with Sheikh Mukhtar, that mentorship idea, of course now you vis-a-vis -vis your mentor and the teacher is one thing. But that mentorship and suhbah idea extends to your relationships with your brothers and sisters. And what I found personally is that my, my understanding and my conception of brotherhood and sisterhood was radically altered by the suhbah program. And I started to realize that my understanding of brotherhood and by extension community was very superficial and very, very should I say even uh, self-indulgent or self-serving? Mm -hmm. Because you know, one of the things that you start to learn is that yes, you have the, the teacher as the mentor, but every one of your colleagues is a teacher in some way towards you. You have a relationship of teacher and student with every other student in the sense that, and in the beginning when we were discussing this, you know, it was a theoretical idea that everyone is a piece of your puzzle. You know, that everyone in the suhba is a piece of the puzzle in your heart that needs to be filled. And that Allah had chosen everyone, you know, Allah had chosen everyone to help you in your quest. That you were not self-sufficient, 
Number two, you, you don't only need a teacher. You also need the, the students of the teacher and other students. So initially, that was a, a thought that some of us had, you know, and it seemed like a very, you know, attractive thought. And it seemed to have an element of truth to it. But as we live through the suhba, it is definitely true that if you truly see yourself as a student with respect to your colleague who is a teacher, in a way unbeknownst to you, you don't know how they're going to teach you and what they're going to teach you and when they're going to teach you. But you know that you have to have that relationship with them. I am a student. So Sheikh Mutar likens it to, you know, two levels. And if you don't place yourself at a lower level, the water will not flow from top to bottom. If you deem yourself to be too superior and raise yourself above the other, the water won't flow down into you and you won't get any benefit. And I think, and speaking to the brothers, they all really echo the sentiment that they've seen in others beautiful traits that they know that they don't have. And in that sense, they were their teacher. Or they've seen in their brothers challenges and through that, they've realized that they have the same challenge. Mm. In, in, it's like in, the brother, the believer being the believer. Yes, to mirror it, to the other. That, that's yeah. exactly it. That, that, you know, the mirror shows you your ugliness. The mirror shows you your potential. Uh, and you are like that, a mirror to someone else. But vis-a-vis your feeling towards the other, you're a student and they're a teacher. And now if you extend that, if that's how you think about everyone in the community, you value everyone in a way that, you know, was never conceivable before. Everyone has a beautiful, sacred value. In your personal quest to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you're needy with respect to everyone. And that brings about a different feeling of community. You know, it brings about a very different experience of of an ummah, albeit a small ummah in Turkey, in in, in Istanbul, but it brings a very different feeling of what it means to be a community. And and I have to say, you know, to just bring this home in one, one regard, this is what's lost upon us here in America and across the world, to be honest with you. It's not just an American issue. But uh, we always complain as to what's wrong with my local community, what's wrong with these national leaders, why don't they get along? Because there's no suhba amongst ourselves. We don't have that. And therefore, we're not looking at each other in the way that Sheikh Riyadh so profoundly and beautifully just articulated. And therefore, we're never able to connect in this deep-rooted spiritual sense with each other to be able to be one and then help move the community forward as one. There's always this divide. And those divides, those divisions, continually cause this trickle down that permeate into the the core of the Muslim community at the national and at the local level. And that's why we constantly are recurring the same exact problems every single year, if not worse. We've lost this concept of true suhbah and being ashab to each other. And, uh, you know, frankly, to be open, as someone who's been involved in Islamic organizational work for as long as I have, I'm, you know, it's, um, I don't want to say it's frustrating, but it just, I'm at the point where I'm just like, it hurts. It's just painful. Uh, I feel pain seeing what's been happening in the Muslim America da'wah scene amongst my brothers and sisters of my age bracket for the past two years. Where's the suhbah with each other? Where's the love? 
Where's the truly, where's the humility amongst each other? It's lost. And therefore, we're going to be lost until we try to do something to fix this. And, you know, I, I typically don't like to bring these issues to the table, but I feel that the constant direction that we're going collectively, if we don't go back to those principles that Sheikh Riyadh just brought up, we're going to be leading this beautiful ummah of Sayyidina Muhammad sallallahu ta'ala in America to a very difficult place to come out of. For those people who are seeking this to get close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but don't see the resources of the suhba directly in front of them, what is the advice you give? Well, firstly, that, you know, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would have, you know, has guaranteed and has promised us that there will always be heirs of His beloved. Always. In every time, in every place. And that there, there will be enough of them. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can't be Ar-Rahim. He can't be Ar-Rahman. He can't be Al-Kareem. He can't be Al-Wahhab. He can't be Ar-Razaq. If He doesn't vouchsafe us the means to journey with our hearts to Him, and when we know that the most beautiful and the truest pathway to that is the role models and mentorship at different levels of these ulama rabbaniyun. So they will always exist in different ways, but in different places, in different times. So that much I think and I believe that we must take to be a certainty. And, you know, it's the modern Muslim condition through so many different ways that has battered this certainty that there will be those saintly scholars around to have access to. And I think it's a travesty of modern Islam, certain modern Islamic views and paradigms that denigrates the idea of the saintly scholar and the importance of connection with them. It's one of the most harmful and most toxic elements of, let's call it, New Age Islamic pseudo-spirituality. So that they will always be around. Number two is that, you know, my suhba with them is at different levels. You know, one of the things that, of course, arose and does arise in the suhba program is, I want more, you know, me time with the teacher. <laughs> now, I want more personal time, you know. Now, that's an interesting feeling and it comes from a good place. But sometimes, you know, it come, I think it comes from the wrong place. That suhba is important, but not always suhba in the way that I want. Because that could be coming from the place of I, which is not the place that, uh, you know, we should be uh, focusing on or, or giving importance to. So physical time is great. Uh, conversational time is great. Writing letters is a form. See, these are all forms of suhba, physical suhba. Speaking, you know, speaking verbal suhba, if you like. Written suhba is also a form of suhba. You know, accessing the materials of these ulama rabbaniyum, whether in person or whether by YouTube or whether by you know, audio only, review of those materials is also a form of suhbah. Implementing what they teach us is probably the truest form of suhbah. Because I think it's rational that the one who is with 
the saintly scholar 24-7, but doesn't do what they say, has no suhbah, but the one who loves them, who follows them, who reviews what they can of their work, notwithstanding the distance, who sincerely prays for them, who sincerely strives to embody them, I think that that person has a profound level of suhbah. Because another level of suhbah, I think the reality of suhbah obviously can't be physical. It has to be spiritual. If, if, if the intent of suhbah is the spiritual quest, then the reality of suhbah is spiritual and is actually a suhbah of the heart. And at one level, the hearts don't know space and time. And you can be in suhbah. Definitely. Trust me, there are times when, you know, I felt closer to Sheikh Mukhtar being a continent away because of my, at those moments, maybe the earnestness of my feeling and my striving for those very few moments of time than sometimes even being physically present and not being spiritually present. So these ulama will always be here and there's different levels of suhbah. One can indeed have the most profound suhbah and not have physical proximity because of some of the other, you know, some of the other facets of suhbah. And thirdly, dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give us that suhbah, to give us that connection, to allow us to see these saintly ulama that are gems hidden. You know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't show them to everyone. Uh, those are the most precious pearls of Allah azza wa jal. And he shows them, inshallah, only to those that he wants khair for. So to ask Allah to allow me to see that and benefit from it and to pray for them. I, I believe this is one of the most powerful ways of suhbah, to earnestly pray for them and to pray to benefit by them. And by that, I think one would, inshallah, realize the suhbah that is necessary for the suhbah of our hearts with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa and beyond that, the divine subhanahu wa ta'ala. Just uh, one recommendation that I'd give to everyone if you want to start this suhbah relationship with a saintly scholar that our dear uh, Sheikh Riyad Saluji mentioned, I would recommend that you pick up a book. It's called The Sublime Revelation, and it's a uh, sermons that were collected of uh, Sheikh Abdul Qadir al-Jailani. It's called Al-Fatih al-Rabbani, and it was translated by Mukhtar Holland. And if you really want to start this concept of suhbah with a saintly scholar, start reading that book and taking from Sheikh Abdul Qadir and sincerely praying to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by this great man that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala opens for you a connection with an individual that will guide you through that suhbah. I think this will be a beautiful start. Alhamdulillah. I want to thank you, Sheikh Riyad, for, uh, for being in the show. We definitely would, would hope you can be on. And I have a feeling, inshallah, in the future we'll be getting... We're hearing more from you and uh, Ustad Muntasim again. Glad to have you back. Allah. You know, don't be a stranger, okay? So I know you're... You have to invite me, Sam. You stopped inviting me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that, yeah, that's on me. That's on me. I'll, I'll take full responsibility for it. I want to thank all the listeners to, uh, for joining us for another program today. Um, you can visit imanware.com for the latest podcast episodes and articles. If you're listening to us on iTunes, uh, please... Uh, give us feedback, leave a, f- a five-star review. All this gets really helps getting the podcast out to uh, a broader audience. And of course, the most important thing to get uh, is, um, and in spirit again of the suhbah theme, is to really uh, uh, speak with, uh, you know, share the, share the podcast with um, your friends and, and family. And that always will help it get out to a greater audience. 
and uh, we thank you for your support in that. Uh, until then, uh, we'll hope to get to see you in the next program. Assalamu alaikum, peace be unto you.